this is Dr. Robin Axelrod. On my drive to work one morning, I thought, how could I promote unity between OTA and OTA students? How could I foster communication and leadership skills and promote our amazing profession? Welcome to my OT Journey podcast. Hi, everyone. Thank you for joining us at my OT Journey podcast. My name is Joanna Madero, and I'm here with my co-host, Rachel Alzarian. Hi, everyone. Um, today, our guest speaker is Christine Tilkington. Christine is a graduate from San Jose State University and has been an occupational therapist and has worked with families and professionals for over 30 years. She is the co-founder of Children's Grow and the owner of It's About Development. She has worked with children with and without special needs, and her specialties include infant and early childhood development, parent-child-family interactions, and mentoring and training individuals and interdisciplinary teams. Thank you, Christine, for joining us today. Um, can you tell Can you tell us a little more about yourself? Oh gosh. Um, well, thanks for having me. Um, I live in Santa Barbara, and I've um, I started a private practice some years ago, which required that I'm home a lot more instead of in an office. So I've um, been adapting to our our new shelter-in-place um, requirements more easily than some folks, so I'm thankful for that. Um, I'm married and I have three grown sons, and um, I most of my friends are retired, but I'm still loving it every day, so I keep on going. <laughs> that's, that's awesome. Thank you for sharing. Um, I know last time we spoke, uh, you... Uh, were working uh, with the babies and you were having so much fun with them. Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah, I'm happy to hear that everything's going smoothly and that you're continuing to do what you love. Mm -hmm. Just like when you were here, Joanne, and uh, we were on the road together going to homes and um, child care centers. Yeah. Except that was... now I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I guess it's an adjustment trying to get used to telehealth and doing everything online now. Yeah. It's actually been easier than I thought it would be. You know, it was always sort of a fear that we might have to do it one day. And I thought, no, that would compromise my practice. But it's it's been full of surprises and a lot of um, a lot of joy. So it's been great. Good. That's awesome. That's great to hear. Um, okay, so I want to start off with the first question from the very beginning. Um, did you know you wanted to become an occupational therapist when you started college? And like, what kind of inspired your journey to become an occupational therapist? Uh, I had no idea that I was going to become an OT when I started into college, but my I was a biology major, which had always been a fascination for me since I was a little kid, um, probably thanks to my parents. And um, so I was a, like pre-med is what I was thinking about doing and maybe, maybe pediatrics. But as I was um, uh, in school, my first few years, a few of my friends be had become RNs, and they were, you know, doing all kinds of um, aspects of their nursing careers and they encountered OTs and we used to get together late at night for coffee and they said we found your career we found your career it's occupational therapy and I said well what's that you know um, so that's kind of where I uh, I decided to um, apply to San Jose State and go there, but I, while I was still in uh, at Cal State Fullerton, I started taking kinesiology and microbiology and some more stuff, you know, to prepare my an anatomy, physiology, and everything. And and I, I really loved it. And um, I also had grown up with a cousin who had cerebral palsy. So, you know, when she was little, there were very few services um, available in those days. She's about my same age. And uh, so I was very comfortable around people with disabilities and having older grandparents. And um, so I kind of was interested in both the beginning of life and the end of life. Um, and um, it just all started to fit together. It was uh, was really a, 
a pretty cool part of my journey, I think, and I attribute it to my friends <laughs> who I'm still <laughs> friends with. They're like kindergarten friends, and we're all still friends. That's so awesome. I didn't know that. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, a long time ago, but it's very fresh in my mind. <laughs> yeah, I see um, like a lot of people didn't always have the path to become an occupational therapist, but found it through like different, you know, through exploration mm -hmm. in college or different experiences that they've had. Mm-hmm. I think that's really common. Yeah. I think it's really common. Yeah, which is good because you've had a chance to sort of stir up the marketplace of opportunities and see what feels really good to you, you know. And, and Exactly. Um, yeah. yeah, which makes you a better therapist in the long run. Um, so what was your first job like after graduation, and did you find it difficult to find a job? Mm -hmm. uh, my first job, we'd just gotten married in... Um, my husband got a job up in the Bay Area, San Francisco. So um, we got uprooted, and I didn't, you know, wasn't keen on moving up there. But anyway, I got a job easily the first time. They hired me right out of school to be a director of a developmental daycare center. I think it was operated by United Cerebral Policy. And this was before early intervention was, you know, anywhere on the government um, docket for legislation or anything, but I only had that job three months. Then we moved to Santa Barbara for my husband's job, and I thought, oh, please don't drag me to this small town, and what am I going to do? And um, the requirements for work, I was interested in psych, too, at the time, but any um, public job required a year of experience, and I only had three months. So um, it was difficult to find my first job. But I, I was hired, well, I worked in my husband's fabric store, and that was an experience um, for nine months. And then <laughs> I got a job at a, um, oh, like a daycare rehab facility for adults with developmental disabilities. And they'd never had an OT working there, but they had a workshop where they produced, you know, everything from ceramics to woodworking to, you know, textile stuff. So it was right up my alley. And I was able to create a curriculum that I felt was more um, uh, developmentally appropriate, but also could ad address the different, um, you know, physical issues that they had. So I, I did that for about a year. And then uh, they had an infant program that was actually started by Pat Wilbarger through, through another agency. And... Um, so I eventually took over that program and found my calling in a center-based uh, infant program. So it, it took a little while, but I think um, after moving to Santa Barbara within a couple of years, I kind of got settled. So it was a, that was a journey. <laughs> yeah. I, I feel like it would be a little scary to, you know, straight out of college become the director of a program. That's that's amazing. It was it was very daunting, and the person who was was there before me had left. You know, months before there was and there was no infrastructure. Mm. They were just literally doing daycare, and um, so I had to kind of start putting in place a program design. And you know, it was it was a steep learning curve, but it was. And looking back, even though it was three months, I think it it showed me a window on the field and what I might be. Um, you know, exposing myself to over time, and it pretty much played out that way. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's, yeah, it's like throwing yourself in. I just had to do it. <laughs> yeah, throwing yourself off the deep end, just go for it. <laughs> yeah. Um, so if you were to go back in time um, and talk to, like, your 18-year-old self, what would you tell her and, like, what advice would you give her in terms of going into the field of occupational therapy? Mm -hmm. um, I, this question was, I thought, oh, my gosh, I never even thought about that um, being so long ago. So it was, I love that question. I think I would say, um, you know, get jobs in a variety of fields. I think I kind of mentioned this earlier and different settings and see um, 
what's the most um, you know uh, intriguing and um, and where you think you might fit you know I think just to uh, a lot of people are unprepared for the the milieu and and you know the way of being in in certain worlds professionally so I think if you can try some different things and that's why I'm always happy when I have prospective OTs like you were Joanie and people that want to come out and see the world of home visiting and see the world of center-based things and just get exposed to um, you know the different aspects of OT but at 18 I wasn't thinking of OT but the main thing I think I would say is don't be too hard on yourself you know there's pressure you come out of school and you think okay you know it's my career I have to make it and I have to thrive and and succeed and I think I was very hard on myself um, for a long time it's probably just in my nature but I would say you know roll with the punches and learn from your false starts and um, and keep on going and and um, you know be sensitive to what really uh, turns you on and where you you know just be alert to what makes you um, kind of thrive in yourself so I guess I would tell myself don't take yourself too seriously but meanwhile be serious (laughs) (laughs) just follow for sure I just feel like with students who just come out of school it makes sense that they would be hard on themselves because they want to make sure they're doing the right thing Mm mm-hmm exactly yeah I know definitely I'm not even out of school yet and I already feel that way like will I remember everything I was taught and is everything gonna work out and (laughs) Mm -hmm. that's so true and you know with with OT I don't know how many people have um, had this experience but I I thought I really wanted to go into psych OT that's what I was trying to you know find the my open door and I couldn't do it because of my um, lack of experience and I sort of fell into this world of developmental disability which did harken back to my cousin growing up and um, I'm really thankful that this is where I've been but it wasn't where I was trying to go you know so I think you never know but you might end up OT has so many um, practice areas and if one doesn't work out you know try another one especially while you're young in the field you know they're not as expecting um, you know we may not have as many expectations for a huge resume at that point and you can start and work your way up so um, yeah you, you don't know you might start out in one part of OT and end up somewhere completely different yeah I like that um, I've noticed that with a couple of our professors they've taken one path in life and it's completely different than where they are now and it mm-hmm. seems like it's a lot of trial and error and I'm trying to keep that idea open for myself and you know what's to come and and keep my mind open to all of the ex- experiences that we're gaining right now yeah and it might be in some of your errors that you really find a challenge that leads you in that direction so um, you know failing and picking yourself back up is is not a bad thing so in school we're currently learning about um, the importance of setting goals in both our personal and professional life so I'm just wondering Mm -hmm. did you set any goals in your professional life when you were in school or at the very beginning of your career and have you accomplished them did you Mm -hmm. have to modify Mm -hmm. them throughout your career and would you suggest other OTs like upcoming OTs to set goals from themselves uh, that's that's another great question um, I think I've always been a goal setter um, my dad was an engineer in the you know space industry and stuff and I think he made us write goals from the time we were like four um, so and and you know they say don't have so many lists well I was the master of lists list 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 um, could drive my husband crazy with my list but um, you know and I've tried not to be a, a goal setter but I always return to having goals and I think they're powerful they come from your inner self you have to get them from your inner self as whereas you know as opposed to your just your um, 
you know, daily life. So it, it's a good exercise. And I think I had them, you know, all through college as well. I, you know, I'd have a section in my binder where I had all my goals. Um, and I would say I've really... Oh, I'm trying to think if there's something I didn't accomplish. Um, because I revised them. I think you asked about modifying them. Um, and I, uh, I had a supervisor one time when I worked in the public health pediatric clinic, and she introduced me to this concept of plus, minus, and interesting. Have you ever done that? No. So, you, you know, on the left-hand side, you write down all the possible things you think you might want to do. And I could have anywhere from three to five, you know, career goals. And then you have a column of, of what's positive about that, you know, what's exciting about it or what's, um, what intrigues you or is that where your skills are and then what's negative about it. What would that mean? Well, I'd have to take on a whole new course of study or I'd be thrown in with, you know, a lot of people that I might not have much in common with or whatever. So you put down the negative stuff. Then you put down what's interesting about this idea. And it really makes you think about, well, what's interesting about it is I think I'm ready for a challenge, or maybe I'm not ready, or maybe, you know, I'm not, I wouldn't feel that comfortable, or I'd get in over my head, or it might take me in a different direction, maybe too much travel, or maybe I like travel, and I, you know, so I just would have all these little pages all the time about that. Sometimes I'd hang on to the same page for a year while I was considering some kind of an adjustment to my career. And um, one thing that I kept on the list was working in an NICU. Um, and that's probably one of the only things I never did. Another, I would thought maybe I'd uh, be a head of an agency, have my own whole agency or, you know, pediatric clinic or something like that. And, um, you know, eventually I steered myself away from that because I knew the intensity of running things. I, I directed programs, big programs, like 80 people on my staff, but I, I was never the top dog, and I think I never wanted to be, actually. Um, but I found that sometimes my career kind of went in seven-year cycles, where I'd do one thing for seven years, and I'd do something else, and then something else. I think I, you know, that looking back, it seemed like that kind of panned out. Um, like I worked in a in a public health clinic, you know, and then I realized I really needed to do home visiting. Um, and I, you know, I I ran the when when Part C or Part H for um, early intervention was being developed, I got involved with a an agency that did the planning for California how to do that. So um, that was I was completely out of direct care for seven years there. Um, but working all around California, you know, putting things in place for what became Early Start. So, you know, it's been, yeah, it's been really um, important to set goals, I think, and, and give yourself permission not to make all of them if, you know, it might not be necessary. Yeah, that's, I, I like that. That's really interesting because I, now that you're talking about it, like I never even thought of doing like, the administrative part or like the back end work of therapy and like you said you were putting mm -hmm. place um like rules and assessments in place and that's that's mm -hmm. amazing like i something definitely that i didn't think about mm -hmm. the good thing about being in charge which i i did like is that i was able to kind of implement my vision and what i knew was the national vision for early intervention, which was helping people make the transition from clinic-based um, professional-directed care to family-centered care. And that was probably the biggest turning point in my career was being able to do that. Um, and, uh, you know, so the fact that I could have a whole program that I could apply to different aspects of early intervention with training and um, supervision of all these people that I hired was really, really neat. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. Like I find that like with myself now that I've been setting goals, I've been so much more focused and 
able to accomplish what I want because I like put myself in that mindset. So it's nice to see that you could um, you could dream about doing something big and actually end up doing it. Mhm, it's absolutely true. I think I probably, if I was looking at my you know twenty something self, I don't know if I would have even thought I would have been able to do as many things as I've done. I don't know. You can't, you know, we don't have a crystal ball, but I had big goals. And, um, but I didn't, you know, I couldn't articulate them when I was just starting out. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so um, in the field of occupational therapy, there's a lot of um, areas that, it covers. So we were just wondering, what is your personal definition of occupational therapy? Oh, golly. Um, that was, I put that one off thinking about, because I thought, oh, how do I define occupational therapy? Um, I remember starting out, we called it an art and a science. So I feel like it's, it's an art and a science of being a catalyst. Um, and I like that word for clients' personal development and supporting um, their adaptation to challenges that can ameliorate the impact of the challenges and promote, like, increased function and satisfaction in their life roles. And in my case, the family members um, and the client and the family relationships are the focus of the interve- intervention. So you have this triangle of me, the mom, and the baby. My focus is on that area in between the mother and the baby, which is their relationship. So, um, and everything in OT supports that. Although we might have a lot of training in being a clinician and doing hands-on, but I've learned that all the hands-on in the world isn't enough to change a baby in a way that the parent, by adapting the environment, can, you know, support development. So um, I think OT is just so perfect because we look at function and we look at the environment and we look at the relationships in the environment. So um, it's, uh, that's kind of my take on it. Yeah, I like how you defined it as an art and science for being a catalyst, because it's really true. It goes from the science perspective as well as the artistic perspective. Mm-hmm. I think that's the best part mm-hmm. of it, too, you know. I know, um, like you said, you started out in the biology field. I also started out in the biology field, and I always just felt mm-hmm. like there was something missing, like there wasn't this creative aspect of it. And so once, Mm -hmm. you know, I found occupational therapy, I can be as creative as I want to be. You know, I can always come up with something new. There's a Mm -hmm. never-ending list of things that I can create. Exactly. It's never-ending. It's never-ending. There's always something, some new way to tweak something that's more, you know, geared to that individual person's life and routines and, um, and new siblings showing up or yeah. people move or lose jobs or get jo- I mean, it's just, yeah, it's never um, repetitive. And yeah. that's one reason I thought, well, maybe I'd want to be a teacher, but I thought, no, I could never survive in a classroom staying put all day. And I, I have total admiration for people who can do that with children, but I knew I needed some kind of, I needed to be flexible. I needed to be out and about, and I needed to um, be going in different environments all the time. And uh, that, you know, I've always been thankful that I was able to do that. I completely, like, wholeheartedly agree with that because I feel the exact same way. Like, I've always thought, oh, maybe I should take the path of the teacher, but... It's too, for me, I thought it was like maybe too repetitive and something that I wouldn't be able to do. And finding this path has like definitely changed, you know, my whole life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, occupational therapy definitely has like much more options and um, like it covers much more fields. So people definitely have way more options in regards to what they want to do. And your, your skill sets and your scientific knowledge um, are so different. Like I thought, I, you know, people that work just in burn rehab, 
or spinal cord injuries or I'm like, goodness sakes. You know, I couldn't just transition over to that. I know for sure. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, okay, so Christine, what would you say is the most uh, challenging aspect of your job and what would be the most rewarding? Mm. Um, I would say over the last, you know, years since I've been in home visiting um, and helping you know, supervising people in home visiting, it's it's scheduling um, visits and meetings that's really, it takes a lot of time. And, and we try to have a transdisciplinary approach so often. We're going out, uh, two of us at a time, me with a speech therapist or with an early intervention specialist or physical therapist. So uh, learning to just do this dance together and I, it's even harder to do when you're doing it on a, a video call. But even being in the home and, you know, we have to be on the same page with each other, which requires a lot of upfront time, you know, kind of reflecting on the family, things like that. Um, and it's challenging, but it's also, it's really rewarding and, um, you know, for the effort that that takes. Um, I'm trying to think what else. You know, I dealing with other agencies that have, um, you know, influence or power, financial or administrative um, impact on on our work can be a challenge because um, you're kind of bucking the system a lot of the time. And um, I, I was probably in some of my years at working at the state level, I was. I was often outspoken. I remember one time we had a huge meeting um, in developing the, some legislation for California. And there are probably 60 people in this room. And <laughs> I'm embarrassed now to even say it, but I, I, I said, I would just like to know how many people here have been in a family's home in the last month. And there was like one other person who was a physical therapist that I knew who raised her hand and none of the other people had, you know, they were creating the future for all these families and they, they weren't with the families. They were completely administrators. And I thought, well, I can't change that. But I knew that I had to have my voice as a, a person in the front lines. And that kind of turned me into one of the key spokespeople for, um, you know, for working directly in early intervention in the state. And I got to, you know, be a part of a lot of things because of that. So I think I shocked people when I asked the question. Um, but I think it, it uh, turned a big corner you know, for me. So we have to stand up for um, what we know to be true. It takes courage. Courage and timing. When I left the program that I, where I had all the staff working for me, we actually had four different um, children's programs, but they gave me a bracelet. <laughs> they gave me a bracelet with a charm on it, and it said courage and timing. <laughs> so obviously it was something I was trying to impart to everybody, you know, even being in a home visit with the family, you have to, you have to have courage to open up some things and follow the parents' lead at the same time, but also know when the right time is to say something. Mm -hmm. So that was pretty funny. <laughs> things have a way of sticking with you. <laughs> yeah. So. Um, okay, what do you, what do you feel are the most important qualities in being a good occupational therapist? <sighs> um, I think for me it's being able to listen and observe. I've um, had some speaking engagements just on observation. <laughs> So really drilling down into what that involves, you know, listening and observing in the environment, mm -hmm. um, asking questions rather than having the answer, um, but, you know, 
Um, I used to call it being a, a detective. So we have to kind of be a detective and follow leads and, you know, follow um, things that we're observing and, and try to get to the deeper level of them. Um, and then to be able to adapt, to be adaptive ourselves and also to be able to adapt um, environments that will be um, more, uh, promote more function of the child within the family. And then the last thing would be learning to really embed our, our science and our, our therapy into their natural environment, into their everyday routines and activities and relationships and, you know, considering their cultural customs and preferences and priorities and, and all that. So I might have a great idea for some therapeutic um, strategy, but if I can't insert it into what they're already doing, it's it's not going to be carried out. So, um, and that all of those is what, what coaching involves. So we have to, you know, especially in in natural environments, we need to be coaching the family rather than directing them. Pretty exciting. <laughs> so it seems that an occupational therapist just needs to be very flexible with working with their environment and the families they're working with in a mm -hmm. situation. For me, that's one of the things that, like, really kind of scares me when it comes to, you know, being an occupational therapist in the future because I... I know it's such a big quality and like such a big part of it and just being able to think on my toes and like always have a different solution whether you know something comes mm -hmm. up or maybe you don't have a specific tool that you were planning on working with or maybe the child doesn't want to do something so always trying to be able to think on yeah. your toes and come up with a quick and easy solution but yes. also that is Sorry. so true um, one thing that stuck with me was when, um, you know, when I was over there and I was helping you out, that you would just go to people's homes and you would just use what they had in their home. And I thought, you know, that's one mm -hmm. thing that really stuck with me because, you know, it's so true. We don't have to go out and get the new toy that's all fancy. You can use whatever's in your house. Mm -hmm. You don't have, it's not an expensive therapy. It's something that we can grab from anywhere. Mm -hmm. it, you know, that's, that was actually kind of a challenge at one point after I left the clinic environment. And um, I got hooked up with an organization um, through um, Robin McWilliam, and it was called OBBI. It doesn't exist anymore, but it was the American Association of Home-Based Early Interventionists. It was a national organization. And... Um, one of the, there was a speech therapist on the board of directors and she and I would talk about letting go of the toy bag and being home visitors, um, we were, you know, that's, that was our challenge. And I, there's still, I still struggle with that, not for myself because I found it very liberating because you can't, you've got to look and see what's there, like you said, not what you have in your bag that you can just pull out and then put back in your bag and put it in your car and leave them. So I'm, I still do trainings around that idea of freeing yourself um, from the dependence on that. Save yourself the money. If I think they need something, I'll just buy it and say, somebody donated this to me and I wanted you to have it. I'm not saying I'm giving it to you. I'm saying I got this donated and it just seemed perfect for you. Do you want to try it? No. So I do sometimes um, give them something, but I don't take it back. Once I've handed it over, it's theirs. Mm -hmm. And I want to come back and say, you know, did you try that? How is that working? Was, you know, we can, sometimes we fail. It seemed like a good idea at the time. And, you know, um, but letting go of having your stuff, your car full of stuff, I think is, is just, it's a huge aspect of, of early intervention. And it's really cool. It's really cool when you don't depend on things anymore yeah definitely it sounds it I guess that's your way that's like the challenge you give yourself every day you know trying to yep. find something new that you can do yeah Ex yeah exactly and there's there's so many things to be discovered in people's lives 
um, I remember, oh, I was doing a whole day training on natural environments in San Diego some years ago and um, talking about the toy bag. And one therapist said, well, I go to families and they have nothing. They don't even have furniture. And I'd been in those situations. And I said, well, um, you know, if you're coming once or twice a week or twice a month and you bring in, you know, ramps and pillows and, and stuff, what good is it if you take it with you? You won't see change and the family will feel guilty because they can't do what you've shown them. Um, and so we had this whole thing on using your own body as a, the parent's body as a therapeutic tool. Um, you know, they, you can make a ramp of your, your shins and the baby crawls up or they crawl over your back or you spin around or, you know, just if you have absolutely nothing, you still have yourself. So that, you know, it's... Uh, for me, it's really exciting to help people see that. And we would do, like, group activities, you know, with people trying to come up with ways that they could still feel like they were accomplishing their own goals while having nothing except the family to use as a, um, you know, to implement it. So, yeah, it's big. It's very big. Yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> um, so... What are your occupations like outside of occupational therapy, like your hobbies or your leisure activities, and do you think they help you cope with any of the stresses of the job? Oh, um, well, I I have too many hobbies that I have probably not enough time for them. Um, but um, I'm kind of ADD anyway, so I can, you know, pick and choose from what I want to do at the time. But I, I have two different friends that I walk with on different mornings, and we've been doing that for like 30 years when the sun comes up and um, on the beach or around town or, you know, um, and I find that that just regulates me for the day. You know, I get a couple miles in on my feet, my body feels better, and um, and we talk, and I just love that. And um, luckily here we've got, a lot of the front, front country of the mountains have wonderful hiking trails. So mm -hmm. those are like being out in nature things, which I love. And um, traveling and planning a trip is, is just uh, one of my all-time favorite things to do, um, big or small. But I like thinking about it months in advance if I can. <laughs> um, and I took up some Norwegian painting that I've been working at and... Um, I love to go skiing in the winter, and um, in the last couple of years, I've been attending church and Bible study, which was, you know, just something I had put out of my life for a long, long time. And it, it's amazing to me how virtually every life lesson is addressed uh, in the Bible with wisdom and love. For example, in James 1 and 2, just the other day, um, James talks about not categorizing others and judging those who are unlike us. And I thought, wow, that's like an everyday guide because we encounter people from so many walks of life. And um, it's, it's like a, you know, it's a guide and it's a reminder every day. So, so that, you know, that um, has been part of my journey in the last few years. And it's, it's been great. It's so applicable. So I have plenty to keep me uh, busy when I'm not working. Yeah, and I bet the California views definitely help. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I can vouch for that. <laughs> um, so yeah, I was lucky here. We can, we can be outdoors almost any day of the year. I know yeah. I'm very spoiled with that. I'm very spoiled. I definitely miss it. <laughs> um, can you tell me about a patient that touched your heart and probably um, changed the way you practice? That was a hard one, too, um, because, you know, I've had so many um, patients over the years. But I, I was thinking back, and probably the biggest ones were a couple little um, infants or toddlers at that time that I had, but they both had uh, severe, like, quadriple um, quadriplegic CP from different, um, you know, 
birth and prenatal situations and I was working on feeding you know the therapist decided what the goal should be and these were kids who couldn't eat and um, I remember that one day I had with a little girl I had her in a positioned in a high chair I'm sitting opposite her at her eye level and one the dad was on the right and the mom was on the left and they were so stressed about the situation and yes I could feed her I could get her to you know close her lips on the spoon and you know it's because I had all my my tools available to me and I I started thinking I have to align with these parents because I'm contributing to their stress because they can't do this and go home and try to you know do it at home um, so that changed my thinking I had another little guy uh, who couldn't sit up and his mom would kind of hold him on his back and just shovel purees down him well of course I thought you know that wasn't the right way to do it he needed to sit up and he needed head and neck control and, and one day she just started crying she said you know what I just need to feed my child and give him nutrition and I thought you know what if it's not a priority for her in how she does it I just need to let her do it and wait till it's a priority and then we'll be on the same side you know so those two issues around feeding I think really touched my heart and changed the way that I practiced yeah going a long time ago oh and then I had um, I was going to tell you at some point about mentors but um, this was like in 1980s and I went to a conference up in uh, the Bay Area and it was a speaker called Carl Dunst who's a um, he's a PhD in kind of education specialist in early intervention and I went up to him afterward because he had been talking about assessment of infants and stuff and and I said well I'm an OT you know and I need to hold the baby and I need to feel their tone and I need to do all this and you're saying don't do that and he said well if you're such a good therapist why do you have to take the baby out of the mother's arms don't you realize what happens when you take the baby from the mother's arms I might have told you this Johnny and it just stunned me and he said you can watch how the mother handles that baby you can see the baby's tone his asymmetry his his head and trunk control his his sensory aversions or or needs um, in their relationship you can see it all without removing the baby from the mother's arms and that was just like this huge aha moment which came at about the same time as those two little kids with the feeding issues I was taking them away from the parents and um, you know that that was very profound very profound so I think we can have these aha moments that really make us turn around and face the other way sometimes and those have been really um, life-changing for me really great yeah um, thanks for sharing I know that uh, these are some experiences that they don't really teach you about like when you're in school so it's things no. that you have to go out in the field and you'll you'll see while you're there and just you know mm -hmm. getting this feedback from you and knowing that you know this is something that you want to look out for and you know especially when a mom has a newborn or a young child and you know who has developmental delays they're probably more protective over their kids so. mm -hmm. yeah. yeah thank you so much for sharing um, are there um, any questions that you wished we asked during this interview that we didn't include? No. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess we covered most of the Try to get everything. <laughs> yeah. I, I would say I wanted to say something about having mentors and you know that it's probably not news to anybody. But my um I had a couple mentors within my field of course I learned a lot from all kinds of experts and things um, but um, you know Jean Ayers was a, a mentor I don't know if she knew it and Pat Wilbarger was she also lives here in town and you know she's the one that kind of opened the door for me into working with babies and um, 
I always really respected her and learned so much. And another OT, Barbara Haft, who's a, um, we've been friends since she was getting her master's here in education in Santa Barbara on top of her OT. And, um, you know, her um, focus over the years, one of them, she's published so much and spoken and trained everybody in the world, uh, was on that coaching and collaboration. So, you know, she was a great role model for me in, in you know, learning coaching more and more. But like um, Barry Brazelton, who recently passed away, he was a, a mentor for me. I was able to bring him out here twice to um, do some training for us on newborns. And um, Stanley Greenspan I met, and he opened up the whole world of floor time and functional emotional development. For me, and um, Carl Dunst, as I mentioned, and Victor Bernstein, you know, a lot of these people aren't, they're not, a, they're not in occupational therapy, but I think I would say be open to people from all these other fields because um, we don't get all that, that interdisciplinary, um, you know, understanding of the way of being with it all when we're in school. You know, it's something we have to really promote for ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, Jerry Paul was another who's a um, infant um, psychiatrist, and she uh, talks about a way of being. So it's not just what she says; it's not wh- what you do; it's how you are. And she introduced me to the parallel process, like do unto others as you would have others do unto others. So it's how I am with the mom that I promote that helps her to be that way with her baby. Or it's how I am with another staff member, reflective, um, that helps them to be reflective with their family. So I, I'm always thinking about the parallel process. And um, Jerry was one that was, um, and Victor Bernstein, very helpful to me in doing that. So I would say look for mentors. And you can tell them that they're a mentor. And they, you know, they might not know it, but I, you know, I've gone up to them at conferences and said, I just want you to know you're my mentor. <laughs> no extra work on your part. I'm just like now we would say you're following them on on Twitter or something. Um. Okay. Um. Finally, uh, what advice would you give students who are interested in this profession? Um. I would say. Have your find and, and cultivate your mentors, but be ready to be a mentor. You may be very early in your career, and you're going to meet other future OTs or and students who had no intention of maybe even going into OT. That once they see it firsthand, want to pursue that. So um, I, I've been really lucky with you know bringing people into the field. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would say you know. There's traits that you're sh- that you're going to show that will be attractive to other people in terms of what the field can be, um, and I think always be in the moment and you know be a guide on the side rather than having to direct and be hands-on, uh, especially in early intervention, of course, and um, use what's there and align with the parents hopes and dreams. When I worked in the clinic setting, I was very medically based and sometimes the doctors would tell the parents at a clinic visit, he's not going to walk. Don't get your hopes up. And that never felt right to me and I started thinking, well, sometimes hope is all they have. And I knew kids that were, you know, had um, significant cerebral palsy that walked at age 12 because the parents never gave up. The team had given up, but the parents never gave up, and their child walked at 12. One of these little guys is um, works in the supermarket and um, is a you know like a, a bagger and a stalker in a supermarket. So he's up walking around all day, and so never you know never give up, um, and and don't give up for the parents because they don't want to give up. Don't squash their hope. That's very true. Yeah. yeah. One thing, Teddy, this is a quote I've used a lot. 
uh, I think it was Teddy Roosevelt that said, um, uh, do what you can with what you have where you are. And that's kind of one of my guiding principles. <laughs> that's a great, great quote <laughs> that mm -hmm. I feel like definitely responds with uh, occupational therapy. Yeah, it does. And that was from like 1905. I don't know. Um, I used to drive my staff crazy with my quotes. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I would find that. these quotes that were completely unrelated to what we were doing, but they were perfect. Mm -hmm. And they would be like, oh, no, more quotes. Oh, my God. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Christine, for coming in today and, and talking on, a, on the podcast. It was amazing. Uh, you had a lot yeah. to say that, I feel like definitely resonated with me and, you know, our experiences together and things that I continue wanting to keep in mind for my future. Um, uh -huh. This is amazing. I, I love it. I can't wait to hear about your future. <laughs> I can't wait. Yeah, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for, ha for having me, you guys. I, it was it was something I haven't done before, so cool. You never know. Check it off, check it off your list. <laughs> plus minus interesting. Exactly. Definitely plus and definitely interesting. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Thank you to the student contributors. If you liked it, please subscribe to our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google. You can also follow us on social media on Facebook at MyOTJourney and on Instagram at MyOTJourneyPodcast. Thanks for listening. Go OT!